0: Shalom Aleichem, friends. We're looking at the Kut volume 19, Shoftim, Sikh number 4. The Shicha speaks about the law of witnesses in Torah. The verse in this week's portion says, By the word of two witnesses shall a matter stand. Yakum davar. Says the Rebbe, we know that there are two categories of witnesses in Torah. There are witnesses that are called Ede Birur, verification witnesses, and they are called ADQM witnesses that actually establish the fact. What does that mean? In most cases of witnesses, they're there just to verify. The facts are the facts. The question is how do we verify that it happened? They're there
1: to test, testify what happened. The,
0: for example, if there's an argument between two people and they come to court, Reuven and Shimon, and Shimon Reuven says, Shimon owes me $1,000, and Shimon says, I don't. Ruben says, you do, I lent you the money. He says, it never happened. So how do we know what happened? We need witnesses. If witnesses were there and they saw the transaction, they can verify it. But they didn't make the debt happen. They didn't make the lien happen. The lien is there even if there are no witnesses. They're just merely there to verify. So for example, if Ruben lent this $1,000 to Shimon and foolishly did not have witnesses present, and now Shimon denies it, and Shimon, let's say, arguably gets off scot-free, whatever the law might be in that case, doesn't mean that he's not a thief. Doesn't mean that he doesn't really own the money. Because the lien, the debt, the obligation is not caused by the presence of witnesses. They're merely there to verify that there is such an obligation. And this is true almost in all cases of witnesses in Torah, all financial transactions. Did the sale take place? Did the damage take place? Did the gift take place? Etc. cetera. The exceptions to that are marriage and divorce. Over there witnesses are not there just to verify, but they actually establish the fact if there's a wedding that takes place without two witnesses, the marriage did not happen. It's not a matter that we need the witnesses to prove that it happened because the husband might deny it or the wife might deny it. No, they both agree. They both say, of course we got married. There's no marriage. It's not about verifying whether or not it happened. It's actually establishing that it happened. And the same thing is true Divorce, and that's why even if the husband and wife both agree, if there is no witness, if there are no witnesses, the marriage never happened. So, these are the two categories of witnesses in Judaism witnesses that verify and witnesses that establish. So, if you want to translate that verse of today's portion, according to the word of two witnesses, sell a matter stand, that word yakum stand can have both meanings. If we're talking about witnesses that verify, yakum means they certify, they confirm that it happened. It happens whether or not they're there, but their presence, their testimony confirms it. If we're talking about the exceptional cases of marriage and divorce, we could translate the word "yakum" stand means that they actually establish the matter. The marriage or divorce takes place by virtue of the fact that they witness it, and because of these two types of categories, um, they they have many differences. For example. When the we're talking about witnesses that established their testimony is instantaneous. The minute it happened, that's it. It's done. We don't have to investigate later the witnesses. It's done. Conversely, when we talk about witnesses of verification, their witnessing, their testimony really kicks in only much later when the man comes to court.
1: Based on this, the rabbit points out a
0: fascinating idea in Jewish law where we see a difference between marriage and divorce in different than every other transaction. And the commentary struggle. Why is it different? And the Rebbe is going to explain it based on this principle, because marriage and divorce have a different type of uh, system of testimony. What is that law that we're talking about? It's a law of toh De dibu, which literally is translated uh, uh, within a moment's notice, let's call it, which means there is a law in Torah that if a person concludes a transaction, it is concluded. However, if he changes his mind within a few seconds, which means as long as it takes to give a greeting, and the longest greeting is a greeting to your teacher, which one would give a proper greeting, shalom peace upon to you, my teacher and, and master. It's five seconds, four seconds, whatever. Within that short time frame, this Torah allows you to retract, the transaction. And this can be very consequential. I make a gift of a a, a large amount of money to tzedakah, to a person, and then in the last second, now after I make the gift, I say, you know what, I shouldn't have done it. I changed my mind. If it's within those few seconds, that's a gray area The Torah says, you know what, you can retract it. You said you're giving it, and you retract it. The same thing can be true um, uh, if a, a person concludes
1: closes a sale when everything is agreed upon. If
0: within those few seconds the person retracts, there's no sale. And if it's not within those few seconds, the sale is done. And again, this can be hugely consequential. What if during those few seconds you know, the price drops or the price goes up and he's able to retract it? There's no sale. And if not, it's too late. This is the big principle in Jewish law. Torah allows you, even after you concluded a transaction, a few seconds to say, you know what? I rethink it. It, it, it didn't happen. And it's undone. The exceptions to that are marriage and divorce. The minute it's concluded, you give her that ring. If you're ever at a chuppah, often the witnesses will actually say, Mikodeshes. She's, Mikodeshes. she's married. He gives her the ring, she holds closes the finger, indicating she accepts it, it's done. And the same thing is with divorce. Once she accepts the divorce, it's done. And the commentary struggled. Why is this different? Why in every other area of Jewish law, you could get that gray area of a few seconds to retract and not marriage and divorce. And the, the Ram, Rabbi Donisim famously answers, the famous commentary answers and says, well, because marriage and divorce are more serious, and more consequential, they're more critical decisions, whereas all other things are less weighty, if you will, and therefore all other things, perhaps he didn't really mean it, and therefore made the last second he changes his mind. Whereas marriage and divorce, we assume that before you went to that place, you thought it through well, and, uh, and, you, and you were committed, and therefore it's too late. And if you change your mind, that was after the fact, and it doesn't count. The Rebbe presents a different approach, a very practical approach, based on this idea that we just discussed. marriage and divorce are unique in another way, that only in that case, in those cases, are the witnesses the ones who actually make the marriage happen. So based on this, we can plainly understand why the marriage and divorce, you can't retract them, even within a few seconds. Because you're not in control. You didn't do it. You're not the only partner in this deal. If I'm doing another transaction, I'm making a sale, for example. I'm the only player. I make the sale. Oops. I decide to pull it back. It's like I'm throwing a ball, but I'm still holding the ball in my hand. I pull it back. But once I've thrown the ball, I can't pull it back. In marriage and divorce, it's, I'm not the only player. It's the chassan and the kala, and it's the witnesses. The minute they see it, they confirm it, they establish it. And therefore, it's not just you who is doing it and you can undo it. It's all of you that are doing it, and
1: therefore it's done, it's out of your hands. The power of
0: witnesses that confirm, as different from witnesses that merely verify. So that's the legalistic, the nigla, if you will, halachic part of the sicha, fascinating in and of itself. Come along the Rebbe and says that we know that every area of Torah that we study about in the body of law will also have its counterpart in Hasidis in Kabbalah, in the spiritual side of Torah,
1: says the Rebbe just like we have in, in
0: law, we have these two types of witnesses, the verification and the establishing type witnesses. We find in Torah two biblical verses that refer to witnesses testifying to the existence of God. We find sometimes the verse says, Ate may die, you the Jewish people, you are my witnesses. And this is a famous thing, everybody knows, we're the witnesses of the world, that our existence is a miracle, we're against all odds. We are the witnesses that there's a God. We remind the world. Then there's another verse, which Moshe Rabbeinu Moses says in before his passing, I I, I call as witnesses heaven and earth, or for God's existence, for what have you.
1: And why did he choose them? Because they'll always be around. So we have both of these sets of
0: witnesses. Why do we need both? We know one set is enough. The Rebbe is going to explain a fascinating thing, that these two sets mirror the other two sets in the legal level of Torah. Heaven and earth represent verification witnesses. They're here to verify uh, the fact of the existence of the self. Whereas the Jewish people, they are like witnesses that actually establish that fact. They actually bring the self to the world. What do we mean? So the Rebbe first points out that whenever we speak about witnesses, we only need witnesses when there's something that's unknown. You don't need witnesses for the obvious. So when we speak about the fact that heaven and earth, or the Jewish people, are going to be witnesses to the presence of God, we're not referring to the energy of God that is just animating the world, the simple light of God, the Malik and the limited light, or even the infinite light. And the reason is because the fact that there is a divine light energizing the world is obvious to anyone but the stubborn one who wants to deny it. It's quite obvious. The same way you look at a person, you know there's a soul in that person. Even though you never see the soul, you don't know what a soul looks like. You don't have to take it on faith. It's quite obvious, especially if you've seen what a body looks like without a soul, then you see a body with a soul. You don't need witnesses to tell you that this is all. You see it through the body. Similarly, we look at the world, the expression, the language is just like the soul fills the body. God fills the world. We look at the world. It's full of life. There's seasons, there's people, there's plants, there's animals, there's planets. And everything keeps moving, just like Abraham discovered God... (laughs) what's moving this whole machine? Even Gentile scholars came to this recognition on their own. If you're really smart, you're going to realize that you're seeing a living, breathing world, and it's got to have a soul namely God. So that is not what we're talking about. For that, we don't need the witnesses. When we talk about the witnesses, we're talking about discovering what the sikhah calls atzimus, the essence of God, something beyond. Or let's use a term which is often wrote in the sikhah as well, and the the, ain't suffering. the infinite of God, not the light, the energy of God that m- moves the world forward, but the infinity, something beyond the world. And why is that so important? Why is it so important that we discover this God beyond the world? So let me give you a plain, foolish analogy. The kid is in kindergarten and he comes home one day and they're trying to teach him arithmetic. They start teaching him kindergarten. Arithmetic. They take two apples and two apples. They teach him that there's four apples. And one day in that classroom in the kindergarten, they bring a visitor to teach the children, and they bring a guy named Albert Einstein. And he explains it to them amply well. The kids come home. They're all excited. Why did school brought Einstein to teach such a basic arithmetic? Whatever the reason was, a PR stunt, whatever it is. Bottom line is the kid comes home. I'm a student of Einstein. When the kid grows up, you explain to the kid you're hardly a student of Einstein, even though it's true that you studied under Einstein. But you hardly studied anything that is an Einstein type of idea. You studied peanuts. You're missing the whole boat. You don't understand who you were studying from, what level of wisdom and knowledge is there. You you got nothing of it. Similarly, and, you know, multiplied infinitely so, the divine light that we see just by looking at creation, we see a world that's moving, energized,
1: and we're, we're wow, beautiful. We see Hashem. It's hardly Hashem.
0: As the mystics famously told us, "Lo yizav ikaret lukusha elam" is not. This is the mainstay, the essence of God that He could create the world. The world is a project that He did uh, with, with with ten utterances. Obviously, it's very important to him, etc., but in terms of effort, 10 utterances. And therefore, if I look at the world and I know God only through the world, through the light that is limited to the world so that the world can exist and be animated, I am bringing God down to size. I'm seeing God in a box. I'm seeing Einstein in the kindergarten class teaching arithmetic. I am cheating myself of the truth of Hashem. And therefore, and that, is, and, and that is not the mission of the Jewish people. The mission of the Jewish people is not just to show the world that there's a creator. Gentiles have that mitzvah too. It's one of the seven mitzvahs of Noah. And just by uh, uh, having some level of faith or even honest intelligence, a Gentile can come to the same conclusion. There's a God, of course. It's not going, nothing works on its own. Nothing moves on itself. Nothing makes itself. It's just rational that there's a creator. The Jewish contribution, the Torah's message, and the purpose of creation, therefore, is to introduce Hashem himself, not God's power of creation, but Hashem's infinity, Hashem, the Ein of, beyond creation. And therefore, most of our mitzvahs are beyond creation. Ultimately, mitzvahs are not here just to, which is where we see the difference between the Jewish mitzvahs and the Gentiles mitzvahs. The Gentile, the seven mitzvahs, is just to make the world a decent place. Because we're celebrating God on the level that he's a creator. Look what he did. He made a beautiful world. And therefore, don't mess it up. And that's what the seven mitzvahs are. Don't kill. Don't steal. Don't be immoral. Don't be violent. Be nice. Be sweet. Be kind. Because there's a creator. And therefore, you you, you can't mess. You got to be nice. But not beyond that. The Torah messages. Are you kidding me? This creator, the whole creation is a, a tiny little project. You're talking about Eintzah, beyond, unknown, infinite. And Hashem wants to share that with us. He wants to share his whole essence with us. He doesn't want to just share the tiny little effort that he put into creation, if you can even call it effort. He wants to share his essence. He wants to share his whole self. And that's why he brought to the world Torah and Israel, the Jewish people, which precede creation, souls that come from before creation, and through mitzvahs and Torah, Right here in the physical, we do things that are that that are embodiments that carry the energy of infinity of Ein namely mitzvahs and taruh. When you do a mitzvah, you are doing the will of God. We know that the will of someone carries their soul. If you really want something, it carries your very soul. The mitzvahs are God's very will, and therefore every single mitzvah. How much energy does it have? How much of God does it have? The whole infinite. It's the essential will of Hashem. It's like the divine message carried in every single mitzvah, the divine energy of Hashem, the full Einstein, if you will, in every single word of Torah, and every single word of mitzvah. And through living it and learning it and doing it, we bring that true of Hashem, truth of Hashem, the infinity, the ain'ts of, into the world. That's the Jewish message. That's the Jewish goal. And that's why we
1: are the testimony to the world of that fact. How is heaven and earth
0: a testimony of the world to the ain't Because we see in heaven and earth clear evidence of the power of infinity. Even though heaven and earth are finite. They're gigantic, but they're finite. That's the nature of nature. Nevertheless, we see glimpses of infinity. In heaven we see that all the planets and galaxies, etc., live forever, so to speak. They've been around for thousands of years, and they're not diminishing, they're not going away. That is a glimpse of infinity. Because every finite thing starts to decompose the moment it's created. The Talmud says the child, the moment of his birth, begins to dry up and prepare to die. die. That's the nature of finite things, that they are composites. They're not real. They're not here forever. They're here because they're put together, or what have you. And therefore, the moment you... uh, You create them, you can start counting down to the time when they won't be here. And that begins immediately. You know, build a table, come back in a thousand years, see if the table is here, the chances are it won't be. Because by nature, and that didn't happen at the end of the thousand years, every single instant, it becomes less and less, it disintegrates, and it decomposes. And here you look at the heavenly spheres, and they they don't decompose. They're as strong as they were when the they were created, sun, the moon, the planets, they don't get old, they don't die, there aren't new ones, it's not like there's, you know, a whole system of uh, death and rebirth, they're there. How can something finite, something part of nature, stand against the rule of nature that things should become weaker and weaker and weaker and disappear? And the answer is that's a glimpse of the Yangtzev within nature. That's how heaven is a witness. And even earth is a witness because on earth, even though everything on earth comes and goes, every person lives and dies, and every plant and every animal, etc. However, while in the heavenly spheres there is the concept of the fact, that they exist as individuals, each one exists forever, which is a miracle, which is an indication of the infinite. Here on earth, everything is the species exists forever. So a person can give birth to any number of generations that come. And the same with an animal, the same with a plant, give me one grain of seed of uh, one grain of wheat. It's a very finite thing. Within it there's the potential for, for fields upon fields and it could never end. So you have the infinity encapsulated, hinted, if you will, within every finite being right here on earth. And therefore heaven and earth too are witnesses to the of. So what do we have so far? We understand how heaven and earth and the Jewish people are both witnesses to the ain'tsav, to the beyond, to the divinity that's infinite beyond the finitude of creation. So now the question is why we need both. Says so the Rebbe, the difference is going to be the aforementioned two different categories of witnesses. Heaven and earth are merely verifications of this truth, the Jewish people, are actually the ones that accomplish it. What does that mean? So to my understanding, this gets very, very deep, just to keep it as plain as possible, and at the same time to give over some of the beauty here. I see the Rebbe explaining this on two levels. I'm going to try to do some level of justice to it. On the first level, the Rebbe is explaining, What is the difference between the Torah, uh, between the, the truths of Hashem, the testimony that heaven and earth brings to the existence of the Ein self versus the Jewish people? Heaven and earth proves that there's an Ain self that's energizing the world. As we said before, we see the power of infinity. The heavenly sphere is even on earth. Things keep on going. They have children, grandchildren. It could go on forever. So we have a proof that there's an Ein Tzav behind it but not necessarily within it. The world itself is a finite thing. However, there's something behind it ain't soft-like that's
1: pushing it. That's not
0: yet the goal.
1: The Jewish people, however, through Bitsus and through Torah,
0: translation, through taking physical things and um, infusing infinite divinity within them, they bring about the ain't soft they don't just testify that it exists. They actually make it happen. The marriage witnesses. They bring the ain'ts off and not that the ain'ts Sof is behind creation, holding it up. But the ain'ts Sof is actually the definition of creation.
1: That's what the world is. It's really just God's personality. That's the first explanation the Rebbe gives.
0: two ways to look at at Hashem's relationship with the world. One is Hashem is holding up the world, but He's outside of it. The world is a world, but Hashem is the power behind it. Otherwise, it it wouldn't keep going, and it wouldn't have this power. See, He's behind it. But you didn't yet show that the world is part of Hashem. And therefore, you can't really say, ain't od mil there's nothing besides God. There is. There's a world, but the world is held up by God. It's not there but for the grace of God. But it stands for its own identity, held up by Hashem. Torah, Mitzvahs, and the birurim that we accomplish through elevating everything physical and infusing it with infinite light, we turn the world to a place where we, which will be seen when Mashiach comes, but it's happening actually now each time we do a mitzvah, that the world itself is an extension of Hashem. I want to take a moment to elaborate, illuminate this message, as I heard from Rabbi khan
1: that he, he explains,
0: just for a moment, a little bit on a side, but this will bring home this difference very, very clearly. What does it mean to understand that Hashem is holding up the world or that Hashem infuses every detail of creation in plain English? So he, Rabbi Adel explains uh, that uh, there's an old discussion, a big discussion. We know in Kabbalah and Hasidus that Hashem created the world through the 10 spheros. And the question is, why did Hashem need spheros? kindness, discipline, and compassion, and everything else, and they correspond to seven emotions, correspond to the seven days of the week, and we give God all kinds of names and definitions. Are you kidding? God is infinite. At the end of the day, He can only create because He's infinite. He's beyond any definition. So who needs these? And even though we have Torah sources, we have verses in the Bible itself, we say it every day in our davening, you, Hashem, you have kindness and greatness and discipline and strength, all the seven emotions. So we know for a fact that's the case, that Hashem, so to speak, superimposed upon Himself the ten sefirot and the seven emotions amongst them. And through them, through those prisms, through those kalim vessels, the infinite pure light shines through and therefore creates every single thing of creation.
1: But at the end of the day,
0: the only way you can create something is because you're infinite. So what did we really gain? How did we get any closer to understanding this process? By dividing up, by divvying up the ain't Sof, the infinity, the simple infinity of God, no-name infinity, and giving him ten names? And why is that a compliment to him? And how does that help? At the end of the day, it's a miracle anyway. It's the old joke of the Helamite uh, who said he figured out how the train runs. Nobody can figure it out because the first time something's moving without a horse. This halamite comes and he says, I'm going to inspect it. I'm sure I can get the answer. And he starts on the last car of the train. And then he moves forward. Then he sees that the eighth car, the ninth car is pulling the 10th. And then he moves forward. The eighth is pulling the ninth. And the seventh is pulling the eighth. All the way up to the fact that the first one is pulling the second. So he comes to the conclusion. He says, this is not such a big mystery. I figured it all out. I know how all these cars are working. Each one is being pulled by the one before it. I'm only left for one little question. What's pulling the first one? Okay, so 9 out of 10 is not bad. Idiot. You didn't figure anything out. The same thing is, we're trying to figure out how the world exists, and obviously it's, it's a miracle. You need the power of infinity but to help us understand it. Kabbalah and Hasidus comes as well. There's 10 out, and it breaks down the infinite light, and therefore everything in the world is a mirror of the divine light. How does that help us? It's all the power of Ainsa. At the end of the day, Hashem is really one. and simple, without any definitions. He has no name.
1: So why all the names? It's explained in Hasidus
0: that there's a tremendous accomplishment through this. Firstly, it makes us feel a certain closeness and we can relate to it because we were created in Hashem's image and we can feel a connection. But
1: beyond that, if we understand
0: that the world was just created by Hashem's infinity, Hashem commanded the world to do existence, what's the relationship of the world to God? The world is outside of God. God is the commander and the world is the commandee. The world is only here by virtue of God. Hashem is behind it. However, the details of the world are worldly concepts. So if you look at water and you look at fire, they're not divine concepts, they're worldly concepts. However, they wouldn't exist if Hashem didn't hold them up. But the energy holding them up is generic. It's infinite. Comes along Chesed as a Kabbalah and says that Hashem took that infinite light and channeled it through the prisms of the Sefirot. And every detailed creation is actually an extension of a divine personality trait. So when you see water, you're really seeing the divine character trait of, of kindness, of Chesed, as it's come down to our world. And that's why water is refreshing and life-giving. You see fire and everything is derived from fire, electricity, what have you. It's not just a worldly creation that is here thanks to God. It's actually a divine entity. It's a derivative of divine uh, sephira, a character trait of givur. And the same with every single creation. Just like when you go to your printer, it shows you there's four primary colors. Am I mixing and changing? Uh, we can create any number of colors. There's the 10 spheres, or probably more specifically, the seven mythos, or seven emotions, seven lights, or seven days of creation. And each one, by mixing and matching, you can come up with any type of creation. A good Kabbalist can look at any creature. Give me the tiniest, tiniest uh, rose, tiniest flower, or what have you. And it'll explain to you that it's exactly what it is by virtue of the fact that it's a mix of, of this, that, and the other combinations of the spheres. And therefore, we have a whole different relationship with Hashem. It's a much deeper level of achdus Hashem, of oneness of Hashem, to the exclusion of all else. Because if we say Hashem is just this infinite light that commands the world, He's outside of the world, and He commands it. He's responsible for its existence. But it is not Him. It is nullified to Him, but it's not unified with Him. However, through the system of the Svitis, we begin to see in every finite creation an extension of God's personality, There's nothing in the world that exists other than God. Not only is it existence, thanks to Hashem, but the very definition of each and every creation is an actual expression of a part of Hashem's personality. So now apply that same thinking to here. The heaven and earth are witnesses to
1: the existence of the Einzah.
0: Because how else can they be here? How else can you have all these signs as I was spoken about earlier? But they don't—they don't bespeak divinity within and of themselves. They speak worldliness, but they—they they show that we're, that Hashem is holding up this world. Whereas the Jew, through Tefilah Mitzvahs, each time we do a mitzvah, we're bringing infinity out of the world. We're bringing in the infinity from the world to fill in as a physical hide of an animal that becomes holy, or a Taurus scroll. A little branch of a tree becomes a lulav. Etc. Etc. We are actually indicating and revealing and drawing down infinity within the world itself. That every part of the world is just an expression of Ein self, and that's a different type of testimony. It's not just a testimony of verification, that there is a God someplace outside the world. That's but a testimony of of uh, of uh, establishing the fact. Hashem will be in every single particle of creation. So that's the first level of explanation within the sechah.
1: The goes now a little further.
0: You could stop right here and you have already some insight into these two types of testimonies. But the rabbit goes further
1: because of the problem here. The problem is that uh, we're saying that the world itself is
0: supposed to be a divine place. But the world itself is the opposite of a divine place. That's what the definition of the word world is, concealment of the divine. The whole word the definition world means, olam means concealment. So the very definition of world is concealment. And now you're telling me That the world will reveal the truth of Hashem, and not as an add-on, but as actually part of its definition, that seems to be a contradiction in terms.
1: In a word, is the world revealing
0: divinity, or is it hiding divinity? We're all saying, well, the purpose of creation is for the world to reveal Hashem. So it's not a world anymore. And when Mashiach comes, the world's still going to remain a world. Otherwise, we didn't accomplish this idea that the world should reveal Hashem. But if it reveals, it's not a world, it's not concealing. So this is a shtickle problem. And this is what the Rebbe addresses in the rest of the sikh. Both these sets of witnesses, heaven and earth and the Jewish people, what is their goal, especially the Jewish people? Their goal is not just to reveal that there is a God, but to reveal that that God is part of the world, that the world is really an extension of Hashem, the world shouts Hashem, it says when Mashiach comes, if you're going to go pick a, a, a fig on Shabbos, you're not going to know it's wrong to pick because you read it in the code of Jewish law. in the Shulchan Aruch. No, it's going to be impossible to pick the fig. The fig is sort of going to say, what do you mean? It's Shabbos. The same way now you can't put your fingers in fire. You don't have to read in a book that it's against the law to put your finger in fire. You're not going to do it because it's impossible to do it. When Mashiach comes, it's going to be impossible to pick a fig on Shabbos, because how could you? It's Hashem's world. That's the idea of Dede Betachtoyim, that Hashem's home is this world, Hashem's truth, Hashem's essence is right here. And that the world itself, aha, Hashem is at home here. He's not a visitor. He's not commanding you, don't pick the fig. The fig is not pickable. It's just an gl- example, a glimpse of what the world will be when Mashiach comes and what Torah and accomplishes. But if that's the case, if the world is
1: able to become divine, it's no longer a world. Divine and world are mutually exclusive. The world means concealment
0: of the divine. So how can this be? How can we have this testimony of the Jewish people that actually brings about that uh, that the world is actually Hashem. It's nothing else. And conversely, if they could bring it about, because the world is Hashem, so why do we need that?
1: It's Hashem. We have the testimony of heaven and earth. The world is Hashem. It's Elokos. Obviously,
0: on the one hand, the world is not Elokos. Otherwise, we wouldn't need the Jewish people to come and accomplish it. Conversely somehow it is Helikos and therefore the Jewish people are able to reveal that it is because otherwise if they're taking a world which is contrary to Helikos and transforming it to something that it's not, then it's no longer a world and they did not accomplish the purpose of bringing God to that world. So how do we have the two opposites at the same time that the world remains a world which a translation of it means a concealment of the divine and yet it contains within it, within it the potential to reveal the divine. However, the Jewish people need to still do it, and it doesn't happen on its own. That's what the sikha tries to do with the rest of the sikha. I'm going to try to do this briefly, just touching upon it, and I want to give an example to this, from another sikha which the rabbi talks about in the footnote, because I think this example makes it much easier to tackle. There is
1: a discussion, that when it came time for the splitting of the sea
0: and the sea split, the language of the Torah is that afterwards the sea went back, by Yosha Hayam. the sea went back to
1: its normal strength. Say
0: our sages, Chazal, was the letter, l'tna'o. it went back to its condition. Translation, and upon creation of the sea, way back when. beginning of time. Hashem made a condition with the sea. I'm creating you only on the condition that when my children come to you on their way to receive the Torah, you're going to split. Otherwise, I'm not going to create you. Do you agree? And the sea, of course, agreed. And he created it. And therefore, when the Jews came to the sea and they're on their way to Sinai, the sea split. Of course, that was the deal. It's part of its condition. So the Rebbe, in another sikh, which again is mentioned in a footnote here,
1: Ask the question, why did he have to make that condition with the sea? Hashem is the boss, he can do whatever he wants. The nature of the sea is to be a sea. Let the sea be a sea.
0: The nature of a sea is to be like this, not like this. And Hashem should come along and command it against its nature. Its nature is like this, Hashem commands miracle, and it stands up, and then it goes back to nature. Why do we have to make a condition with the sea? That it should stand up against its nature when the time comes. Why was that important? So the Rebbe explains that that is very much part and parcel of the whole idea that Hashem wants to bring his presence into the nature. We talk about going to the Jews are going to Mount Sinai. What's the purpose of Sinai? To get the Torah. What's the purpose of the Torah? To make a home for God in this world. In plain English, what that means is. This world, let's call it nature. Beyond the world, Hashem, let's call it miracle. The idea is for this world to be at home with the miraculous. And therefore, if the sea, the nature of sea, and the miracle that Hashem created would be in conflict, and Hashem would just command the sea against its nature, then He didn't accomplish the whole idea that we're trying to fuse nature with infinity, with miracles. The sea remains natural, it has no interest in the miracle, Hashem forced it against its nature. And that would be contrary to the goal of Sinai, that the world should be infused with the beyond nature, with Hashem, with miracle. Therefore, upon creation of the sea, when Hashem created it as a natural being, He embedded in it a condition which is, so to speak, contrary to its very existence. He embedded within nature, the miraculous. He embedded within the sea, I'm making with you a condition. You think you're just a natural sea. Yet Proof is when a miracle is needed, you will stand up. And that now becomes your nature. And in this way, we're getting a glimpse of the concept. That the world, nature, and miracle, the world and itself, are not in conflict. The world itself contains within it the Sof. even though seemingly the two are mutually exclusive, nature and miracle are opposites. World, olam, concealment, and revelation of the divine are opposites. However, being that this was a precondition to its creation, the principle is that when something is a condition, is created conditionally, then that condition is part of the fabric of the creation. And therefore, even though the sea is a natural phenomenon, being that Hashem made a condition with it that it will perform the miracle when needed, when it did perform that miracle, it wasn't contrary to its nature, so to speak, because within its nature, it had the fabric of it because it was conditional to its very creation that it will perform the miracle at the right time. And in that way, Hashem was able to bring, to bridge this gap between nature and miracle, between world and God which seem to be totally opposite, mutually exclusive almost, by making it conditional. Since the purpose of the nature of the sea, the nature, is miracle, therefore when the miracle happens, that miracle is part of nature. Expand that to the whole project of creation, go away just from the splitting of the sea, the whole project of creation. Hashem makes a world, which seems to be a concealment of Elokos, however, there's a condition for that world, there's a purpose. What's the purpose? That through Torah and the Jewish people, this world should be a home for Hashem. That's the condition upon which it was based. And therefore, from the first moment of its creation, in its fabric, it has the potential for revelation of Godliness. Even while it is exactly the opposite of that, a complete concealment of Godliness. So this is, this is how the Rebbe presents in our sikha the idea that we're trying to accomplish here, namely that the Jewish people through and mitzvahs are going to not just show that there is a God Ein Sof outside the world, but that the world is infused with Ein Sof. The world is really just Ein Sof, even though the world is the opposite of Ein Sof. The world is worldliness, concealment, limitation. Ain't self is infinity, revelation. i not going to go together. And the answer is, well, that was the condition of this. Just like the condition of the sea. Of the nature of the sea was the miraculous behavior of that nature. And therefore, potentially, the nature of the sea is already miraculous. That's an illustration of how Hashem made the whole project of creation. He made a world that's finite and concealing. That's the definition of oilam, world be shon the world means concealment, that's what a world is, but the purpose of that concealment is for God to be seen through teta and mitzis. and therefore, potentially, if you have the right glasses for the first moment of creation, you don't see concealment, you see revelation. That's how the Jewish people are later able to come and actualize it through teta and mitzis.
1: However, if that's the case.
0: So we just squared the circle. We just explained how concealment and revelation are not opposites because why? Because the the, the concealment, the world was created with the purpose and with the condition to reveal Hashem's light. So what do we need the Jewish people to come and do Torah and mitzvahs? The world is already um, defined by that condition. The Rebbe says that we find in Jewish law that things are defined by their condition, by their purpose. If I do something with a certain purpose, that becomes the definition of it. Let me gives us an example from the laws of Shabbos. And this is going to bring home this idea that since the world is created with the purpose of Torah, Mitzvahs, and divinity to be revealed, the world is already uh, a, a potentially a holy place. And the Jewish people can actualize it. What's the example that he gives from the laws of Shabbos, that if somebody carries God forbid on Shabbos, in order to, to actually be liable for the desecration of Shabbos, the prohibition is no matter how much you, you do, even a tiny bit, but to be liable for the sacrifice or what have you, the lashes, if it's on purpose and with witnesses, you have to carry out um, more than a certain amount. You're violating the law of carrying a Shabbat from a private domain to a public. If, how much do you have to carry? You have to carry out a certain amount. It has to be an olive size if it's food or what have you. The tiniest amount would not count and would not be considered uh liable. What happens if I carry out a vessel, a giant plate? And on the plate, I have a little bit of food that's less than the olive
1: size. The plate is clearly much bigger.
0: It says Jewish law. We don't care about the plate. We just look at the olive size of the food. If I carry out plates, I carry out a plate, I violated chavez. But if I carry out a plate with food on it, The purpose of the plate is not the plate, it's the food. And therefore, now I don't look at the plate. I disregard the plate. There's no plate. I'm not carrying plates. I'm carrying food. And therefore, if the food on the plate does not have the measurement, I did not desecrate the Shabbos on that level. That's an example, even in halakha, in Jewish law. And being by Shabbos, we need everything to be done with awareness, with a mindset. Otherwise, it doesn't count. That the mind creates the reality, being that my focus is the food. The purpose is the food, not the plate. I don't measure the violation on the plate, but rather just by the food. Similarly, since the purpose of creation, so to speak, Hashem's mindset is to bring a to the world, godliness to the world through Torah and mitzvahs. And therefore the world is really not a concealed place. It's actually all revelation.
1: So now the question becomes well, why do we need the Jewish people
0: to actualize it?
1: You've proven the case very strongly that the world is really potentially divine because that's God's purpose for it. So why do we have to do anything? If something
0: is potentially divine, it's already divine. So the Rebbe explains that there's a difference from God's perspective and our perspective. This is a yet deeper part of the Sikha. We we'll just briefly touch upon it. The perspective of God. The principle is that potential
1: is actual. But that's only true with God.
0: With you and I, with everything else besides Hashem, potential is not actual. And therefore, the fact that I have an intention, why I'm doing this project for this and this reason, it doesn't really affect the project. If I build a table, because I want to use it for Torah study, or I build a table to play cards, it won't make any difference in the table. My potential, my purpose doesn't, become visible in the actual with Hashem though it is and the reason is relatively simple being that by by me how come my purpose is not visible in the project that I create because I'm not the only creator of the project if I build a table I went to Home Depot and I got lumber and I got paint and I got screws and I got nails I have a purpose in my head but that's not the only thing that created the project that purpose is now actualized with a whole combination of materials. And therefore, my purpose is all good and well. You won't necessarily be able to tell why I made the table in the physicality of the table. Whereas, and therefore, until I actualize it, it doesn't exist. Whereas in Hashem's realm, he doesn't go to Home Depot. The verse says, everything is from you. There's only one source. Everything is him. And therefore, if he wills something, and he wills it for a certain purpose, it already exists, and it's already complete, and its purpose is accomplished. And therefore, from Hashem's perspective, yes, the world is already a divine place, from the first moment of creation. And otherwise, there would be no way for us to actualize it to through Torah and However, from our perspective, the perspective that we see the world, being that we live in a world where potential is not actual, we don't see the actualization of that purpose. And therefore we reveal it or we actualize it from the perspective of of the world through our mitzvahs and through our Torah. And who is it done by? It's done by the Jewish people who are in the world, and therefore they're able to do it. And how could they do it? Because their souls are rooted in God and all that. But bottom line is they're in the world, because then from the perspective of the world, we see the project to its fruition. The bottom line takeaway of the whole thing is that... uh, Therefore, coming back to the two sets of witnesses, heaven and earth testify to the existence of the angel, but as something, so to speak, holding up the world,
1: the generic source of the world. But not that they are the definition of the world,
0: whereas the Jewish people come along through Torah and Mitzvahs and create a new reality, so to speak which is already a reality in potential, otherwise they couldn't create it. Potentially the world is already divine, just like the sea, the nature of the sea is already miraculous, otherwise you can't transform it. However, it's only in potential, and while from Hashem's perspective that's already done, from our perspective it's not, and therefore from our perspective we are actually making the world to Hashem's place through taking physical objects and infusing them with holiness and showing and revealing and drawing down holiness with, on every single physicality of our world, literally transforming the world itself into a divine place. However, how could we do it? Because potentially it's already so from the moment of its creation. And the Rebbe explains elsewhere in this connection a beautiful takeaway, and it's really it's hinted by the end of this sicha as well, that when a Jew looks at the world, how should they view it? Should they view it as an obstacle to godliness? or should they view it as an opportunity? Says the Rebbe. I heard this from Rabbi. Says the Rebbe. Depends. If you're doing nothing. You didn't lift a finger to do Torah and You're just observing the world and accepting it as an existence. You're passive about it. You're not doing your avodah. God forbid. Are you kidding? It's a total concealment. It conceals God completely.
1: However, the minute
0: you do something, you jump into action and in any way, do the smallest mitzvah, stop learning a little bit of Torah, take any tiny bit of action, you'll suddenly realize that the world is not a concealment at all. It's gonna be a transformation of 180 degrees. And you're gonna wonder why, suddenly everything will work for you, the mitzvahs will come easy, and etc. how? If the world of total concealment suddenly becomes easy, and the answer is because even as a total concealment, in its very fabric, in its potential, in its purpose, it is already divine. However, actually, it's not from our perspective, and we create it through our Torah and
1: through our mitzvahs.